Our passage this morning is Hosea 5 and the first part of Hosea 6. We'll work our way into the opening verses of chapter 6. We're in our fifth week in the prophet of Hosea. We're in the hard part of the book. Week after week is going to seem pretty daunting and dire as we go through Hosea's prophecy, but there is good news in it. So, in spite of what it sounds, the Lord is speaking the good news to His people And he's speaking it to them against their sins. So keep all of that in mind as we work our way through the middle section of the book. Young believers, young Christians, how does God describe himself in our passage this morning? He calls himself something a little unusual and maybe uncomfortable. So how does God show himself to us in our passage this morning? This is the good news From Hosea, the heartbroken prophet. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. You've been a snare at Mitzpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. And now the new moon shall devour them in their fields. Blow the horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Aben. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he is determined to go after filth. But I'm like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He'll bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. 
Oh Lord, this is what we know. From the depths of woe we have cried out to you and from the heights of glory you have answered. But it's even more than that. From the heights of glory, you stirred us and moved us to cry out from the depths of woe. And then you answered. All of this has been of your grace. You have broken our hearts for our sin. You have pressed us with our need. And then you have made yourself the cure. And for our salvation, we're grateful. And for those who do not know you by grace, we pray that you would reach out and take hold of them. And for the rest of us who are busy and distracted and too much like Gomer and Israel still, we give ourselves away daily and hourly. For those of us who believe, but not very well, and those of us who fall asleep, far too quickly and too often. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would stir us again, break our hearts and fill us with joy. And in this we'll know that we're alive in your gospel. And if you'll do all of these things, we will give you thanks. And we pray them all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? On career day at school, Jezreel and No Mercy and Not My People didn't even bother to invite Hosea to come because nobody would want to hear about being a prophet. It paid nothing, had no retirement, no dental plan. No discount packages at the country club for profits because nobody wants to golf with a profit. You don't invite a profit over for tea or happy hour. You avoid contact and conversation with a profit. I know. I've seen and I remember all the color plates that were put in our Bibles when we were growing up. Elijah and his Viking features and his comic book forearms. Elijah didn't look like that, you know. And Jonah sitting on a rib in an esophageal cave. Nobody ever did paintings of Isaiah. Because Isaiah was commanded by God to walk around in a loincloth for three years. Against all decency and modesty, Isaiah kept turning up in his underwear. And he was asked to do this to show the naked shame of the sin of the people. For three years, Isaiah did this. Nobody painted paintings of Jeremiah, who was commanded not to marry. A symbol of the disrupted life of the people of Judah once they were carried away into exile and slavery. By all accounts, Jeremiah was an eligible bachelor, but he was a widower before he ever got to be a groom. And then there's Hosea. Hosea had wedding bells in his story, but they were broken and they were clanging because he marries a prostitute and has children whose names are like lemon juice in a cut. It's hard 
to look at Hosea. It's hard to be around him. It's hard to look at or be around any of the prophets when you get right down to it. You never know if a prophet who's in your company will suddenly just go all wild-eyed and biblical on you and start prophesying in your face with far too much urgency and spit. No one was happy to have a prophet around. Least of all, the prophet. Because they knew who they were. God had made them His holy fools. And they knew what their job was. Their job was to break the hearts of the people. In truth, they just made the people mad. When the people saw the prophet coming, they looked away. They looked down. They shuffled down a side street and pretended to have, busy, to have business there. So, why did the prophets do it? Well, one of them, Jonah, tried to run away. It's easier to get out of the mafia. Why did they do it? Isaiah, the one-man prophetic peep show, and Jeremiah standing outside cathedrals on Saturday afternoons in June, sorrowfully watching some woman in white throw a bouquet backward over her shoulder down the cathedral steps. And Hosea, who endlessly finds his wife's name and phone number scrawled on the bathroom walls of truck stops. Why does anyone do anything that's hard? Why do you get up and go to work in the morning and answer the phone and hear complaints? And why do you study and why do you learn and why do you think and do homework in subjects that don't hold any importance as far as you can see? And why do you stay at home with kids and make lunches and do laundry endlessly? Or you don't stay home with the kids, you work and you care for your children on top of a work schedule. Or why do you come home at night when you know as soon as you walk through that door all hell will break loose? Or it's already broken and it's waiting for you. Why do you do any of it? Because you love it. Or at least you love some part of it. You love something about it. And so did they. Or better yet, God loved his prophets in what he gave them to do. Or to be even more precise still, his love for the people was coming through in what he gave to his prophets. That's why they did it. God's loving His people in unusual ways, but He's loving His people. And the question is, how does a loving God show love to His people who are heifers? That's what they and we were called in chapter 4 last week. Stubborn, obstinate, immovable, cowish people. How do you love people like that? You break their hearts. And now for a bigger puzzle. What breaks the heart of a cow? And maybe to answer that question, we should feel the cowishness of our hearts by walking back through the passage. So in verse 1, the kings of Israel are corrupt. 
Last week it was the priests. Now it's the kings. The kings are leading the people astray. So the days of Samuel the prophet and priest and David the king leading the people to follow after God, those days are long gone. And then in verse 2, the kings go up to holy places where God has done saving acts and they sacrifice to other gods there. They give credit for all Yahweh's acts of salvation to other gods. And then in verse 3, Israel has played the whore. She's defiled herself. She's given her heart away countless times. Verse 4, their deeds have carried them so far away from the Lord, they can't find their way back. And the words they speak pull their hearts away from Him further still. And then verse 5, the pride, the defiance of Israel has risen before the Holy One's face. The image is, stench has risen before Him. And they stumble and they fall all over themselves in their guilt. This is the opposite of walking upright and in the love of God. And then verse 6, they're like flocks and herds, roaming and searching aimlessly, hoping to find Him, but they can't find Him. He's withdrawn. They're not listening to His Word. They're not listening to His voice. They're not listening to His Spirit, His prophecy, His gospel of repentance and restoration. And in verse 7, they've dealt faithlessly with him. They've cheated on him and borne alien children, foreign children from strange fathers, but not children of God's grace. And maybe the hardest statement of them all is in verse 11. Ephraim, Israel, was determined to go after filth. Israel chased after filth. That's what our lusts are like. It doesn't matter what form they come in. It doesn't matter if our lusts are obvious or more respectable looking lusts. They're all ravenous cravings for filth. The English sociologist Beatrice Webb has this great line. She says, in every story the wolf comes at last. You just never expect that God's going to play that part. But in verse 14, he calls himself a lion. I will come to you like a beast, a predator, a lion. But remember, this is not unprovoked. God's not the villain in this passage. He is the holy faultless one. He's the wronged one. And in fact, the situation has gotten so bad that in verse 14... He claims, when his people are wounded, they still won't turn to him for love and healing. Still, they go to others who have no cure, can't help his people at all, but they chase these others endlessly. What can break the heart of a cow? A lion. The sensation that lit up the internet this week, maybe you saw it, was footage taken by an American family attending a circus in the Ukraine. The lion tamer, who was shut up in the cage with six grown male cats, was attacked three times. Three times. He tried to fight them off, but the cats kept coming. These masses of fur and fury and unreasonable heat. 
And while the lion tamer is getting mauled, dad keeps filming and people are horrified by what they see and women are screaming and children are crying. But this father continues to try to film through all of it and at one point you can even hear him trying to calm his own children down by saying, no, no, it's supposed to happen this way. This is what happens at the circus. It's okay, they're just playing. And then he sang a children's song over top of the mayhem. The wheels on the bus go round and round. It was so incongruous, he should have said, the tamer in the cage gets torn apart. It just didn't fit. And finally, the breaking point came when one of the cats drew back and took a flying leap at the mesh netting that separated the inside of the ring from the people in the grandstands. And for an instant, it looked like he was going to get through. And that's when American filming dad said in an overly cheery voice, Okay, everyone, time to go. And they made their way to the exit. And what this passage is telling us is, Ah, the lion is loose and roaming free. And he's walking through our world and he's walking through our lives and he's walking through the church. Now here's the strange good news of a predatory God. When the holy lion charges me, it's not the end, it's the beginning. It's not the charge of doom. It's the charge of salvation. It's not the charge of rejection. It's the charge of restoration. And it comes in two parts. So first, there's the fatal bite. The bite that's so deep, you can't survive it, and you're not meant to survive it. Everything I've loved, everything I've desired, everything I've trusted, everything I have longed for and craved closeness to and worshipped in place of God, everything I've insisted on as being of utmost importance, but which God hasn't given to me. All those things are like Gomer in heat in me, giving too much of herself to lovers who never made vows to keep her and treat her right. And every time Gomer swam in another pair of eyes or fell into another pair of arms or was carried off by another set of smooth words or good looks, and every time she tumbled into another bed, she was trading love for lust. And I make the same trade down all the time. I don't want what grows my heart. And I don't want what matures my emotions. All of them, not just the excitable ones. I don't want the things that will mature my emotions. And I don't want the things that challenge and then satisfy and settle my mind. I just want the things that make my heart beat fast and my breath short and my blood hot. Those things only, please. I misinterpret love all the time. Not love... Give me lust and call it love. Just like 
Madame Bovary reading all of her dime store romance novels and angry that she couldn't make her life match them. But the loving God, the loving one, won't give less than love. So he wounds us with our demand. And he dangles Jesus from the lion's teeth of the cross. And he says to us, here's what no love passing between us looks and feels like. This is you refusing to love me. This is me turning away from you. And to see how perfectly he's loved me. And to see how routinely and regularly I slap his love away. I can feel the bite. His teeth sinking deep, soul deep, wounding me. Pulling up pain for the insult and the foolishness and the childishness. And there's this crushing and pressing out of whatever resistance hangs on in me. And then I bleed with sorrow and remorse and regret and repentance. How could I ever have thrown this love away and thought I could do without it? And what if I don't feel all of this? Well, then maybe you're not bitten. But Jesus hangs there under my lovelessness. And he hangs there under the heartbreaking bite of love withdrawn. And I see myself in him. I hang in the lion's jaws, limp-like prey too. And it's in that helplessness and that need that we're healed. Because the text says, the lion has brought us to the end of our pride and ourselves, our arrogance, our sovereignty that wants to war against the good and holy sovereignty of God. He's ruined all of that with his bite. And the lion that has wounded us begins to lick the wounds he gave. He pours love into the barren places of our lives. Barren because we had thrown his love away and all the hemorrhaging and the infection and the non-clotting and the open pain from our willful and unbelieving sin subside and we're bandaged and soothed and knit back together and mended and made stronger and more whole than before. And he says to us in verse 2 of chapter 6, after two days he will revive us. That's important. Those two days mean that we've felt the fullness of the wound. We've died from the bite. After feeling the wound, He will revive us. And on the third day, He will raise us up. That's not mistaken language. That's resurrection language. I have put you to death in your sin to raise you up in my love. And in verse 1 in chapter 6, He explains the whole thing. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. The text says, the lion of salvation wounds us in order to heal us. His love is so good that He chooses it for us even when we won't choose it for ourselves. And He chooses His love for us in ways we would never value love enough to choose for ourselves. It takes a lion to bring love to a people too cowishly stupid with sin 
to want love. He wounds us to save us. He wounds us to heal us. So the reassurance of all of this, as difficult a passage as it is, is that even when He gives us sorrows, they're from love and they're for love. And what He gives us are not pointless sorrows of futility. He's not trying to frustrate us. He's giving us sorrows that are purposeful. And He's giving to us His own sorrows. These are the sorrows for which God wept over His runaway people. These are the same sorrows that Jesus carried to the cross. And now they're ours. We get to weep with Jesus over our own sin and the offense of the sins that we commit. The sins alive in us. And that's how we know He's at work in us from love. The sorrows He gives us are the sorrows that we're meant to share with Him. And obviously He's changing us if our hearts are moving in this direction now. And He doesn't mean to leave us locked in sorrows. For that to be the case, He'd have left Jesus stuck on the cross or He'd have left Jesus sealed up in the vault of the tomb. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in overcoming joy. Which means... He intends for you to share that joy as well. Not just His sorrow, but you're to share His joy as well. Sharing in joy means to value or assess or to be aware of and savor the sweetness of all the ways in which this God has loved us. And what we're supposed to do is not be generalists about it. We don't talk of His love in non-specific ways. We're supposed to speak very particularly. This is how He has loved us. With great specificity, this is what He has done. Because people who are sure of His love find in themselves a diminishing need to look for love in all the wrong places. People who are developing a taste for His love, won't trade down for lust so quickly. Just remember this. Measure your life in this. When He gives you sorrows, He's giving you sorrow for sin. Sin you can't see, but it's there somewhere may not be obvious and it may not be on the surface circumstantially, but there's sin there when He gives you sorrows. He gives you these sorrows because He wants to be the cure of your sorrows. Don't run elsewhere looking for someone else to heal you and comfort you. Those sorrows were given to you so that you would turn to Him. That's what the text says. And when you have joys in life, They didn't come to you randomly. He gave them. He's the source of them. He's the fountain of those joys. And He wants you to celebrate those joys with Him. But what He won't do is not love you. And if He has to, He'll make Himself a lion to do it. 
This section of Hosea is very difficult. And surprisingly, it was all captured in a children's book, believe it or not. It's in the third book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy. There are five main characters, two children, Shasta and Erebus, and two talking horses from Narnia, Bree and Win, and then there's Aslan the Lion, of course. For most of the book, the two children and the two horses don't meet Aslan. The great lion is chasing after them like a fierce hunter throughout the entire story. But what they find out at the end is he's chasing them into his grace and love, and they won't come any other way. When Aslan finally appears to the characters, when one of the horses gathers herself in spite of her fear, and she approaches the great lion and she speaks to him first. And she says, Please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. And that's what it looks like to be bitten by grace. Why would people of all kinds, school children and spoiled brats, and housewives and desperate housewives, and young professionals and unprofessionals, businessmen and conmen and liars and cheaters and rule keepers and lost romantics and hopeless fools, the happily married, the not-so-happily-married, the unhappily-unmarried, pornographers and prudes, preachers and profligates, and maybe they're one and the same. What would make all kinds of people say, I just want to be swept up in your beauty, and I don't care what it does to me. I just don't want to be fooled by any lesser beauty any longer. What makes people say that and mean it? Teeth marks in the heart. Amen. And oh Lord, we pray that you would love us so fully and completely, that you would refuse to turn away from us, and that you would insist on loving us, even if you have to make yourself a lion to do it. And we thank you, those of us who know it from our own lives. We thank you for the bite of grace that has pierced us and undone us and has made us mourn for our sin and has shown us how thoroughly we have slapped away the perfect love of our God and how often we run to others to love us and care for us and keep us. And then not only do you wound us, but you lick the wounds you give and you heal us with the beauty and the mercy and the righteousness of Jesus. You heal us with the new life of Christ put within us and insisting on more of his gospel in us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be people who know how to talk about both
living under the bite and living with licked and healed wounds by grace. And we pray that you will pour your spirit out and save many among our neighbors and friends and family members and that you'll make us evangelists. And we know what's coming. We know what they're facing. We know they'll be bitten too. And we know it hurts. But still, we'd rather be eaten by you than fed by any other. And we know that our friends would say the same if you would regenerate them and make them alive in Christ the way you've done with us. Be gracious to us and be gracious to many whom we love. And in all of it, be the magnified and exalted God. And for all of this, again, we will thank you. We ask it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.